Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. My name is David Warho, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. I'm also a member of the PCICS podcasting committee. Today, I have the opportunity to speak with Javier Lassa from Texas Children's Hospital. He presented his work on improving resuscitation outcomes and acute decompensated heart failure at the Joint Pediatric Critical Care International Meeting in London this past year. This meeting was a joint endeavor of PCICS, PICS, the Pediatric Intensive Care Society of the UK, and the European Conference on Pediatric and Neonatal Cardiac Intensive Care. Thank you so much, Javi, for joining me. Hey, Dave. How's it going? Thanks for the opportunity. During the meeting, you had a few talks, so um, I don't want to belabor each and every one, but just talk to me a little bit about um, how you got into resuscitation as your, one of your niches in pediatric critical care. Um, good question. I think it's really important, especially for, for young trainees, to hear how folks find their, um, their passions and how they get pushed along and you know, I, I put together a, um, a short editorial for the PCICS website recently that talked about the role of mentoring, um, and, and my journey is definitely still early in its path, and I appreciate you saying it's a niche. I, I don't see myself as someone who's got that niche yet, um, but it's still sort of forming. I think for, for most folks, it's a combination of what they're curious about at the bedside, plus someone above them who says, you know what, you have potential, and I think there's a great project for you. And sometimes those are married, and sometimes those are forced. But for me, it really began um, during my training at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I did a cardiology fellowship there and did several projects on imaging, looking at some late-term outcomes for Fontans, but really found myself constantly drawn to the cardiac intensive care unit. I love the comprehensive experience, seeing patients uh, from beginning to end of acute illness, and it really was the marriage of sort of the generalist in me with the subspecialist in me. But when I decided to do a double boarded training process at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and did an extra two years of pediatric intensive care, I found a group of extremely passionate, extremely well um, published, and really devoted resuscitation scientists. And it's really that experience with working with folks like Dr. Bob Berg, Dr. Vinay Nadkarni, and of course, Dr. Alexis Topshin really took me under their wing and said, you know what, we see some potential here and we have some projects, would you like to be interested? It, it was a dream come true working with them given their tremendous experience. And really the culture there at that division was, was one of which, listen, we wanna get everyone on board, we love what we do, and let's get everyone excited about it. And by the way, potentially give you some opportunities in the academic world. So I never saw myself in medical school as someone who would do research. I loved clinical care, but I found myself asking a lot of questions. And I think for folks who like to ask questions, then I think you should never turn that door um, away or that opportunity away. I think if you like to ask questions, then there's an opportunity for you in academic medicine. So uh, during my two years of PICU training there, um, I uh, was given an opportunity to work with Dr. Topshin looking at the um, American Heart Association's Get With The Guidelines Resuscitation Registry, which is the largest in-hospital cardiac arrest registry of data uh, available, providing both pre, intra-arrest, and post-arrest data for both children and adults in the United States and North America. 
And the specific question, which was one that I was, I was again, trying to marry my, my interest was with regards to the role of extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or ECMO, during active CPR, what people, people will refer to as eCPR. And so there's a tremendous opportunity to say, listen, we have a large um, sample of patients who've had both conventional CPR and those who've then gone on to receive eCPR in this database is one better than the other. And that project really opened my eyes to um, propensity analysis. It opened my eyes to the value of registry data. Um, and also opened my eyes to, to the potential of applying my clinical questions um, in a real life science fashion. So tremendous opportunity to go ahead and do that. Um, I had a lot of mentoring from folks who have a lot more statistical experience. Um, and really seeing that project from beginning to end uh, was what solidified my interest in pursuing potentially resuscitation science as a, as you refer to niche. And one of the things that strikes me, I mean, you're relatively early in your career, but, uh, and so am I, but, you know, just since training, there's been such an evolution in our understanding of CPR and resuscitation and eCPR, and, you know, even the, the AHA guidelines this year changed. So, um, tell me a little bit about what you think the biggest evolution in our understanding for resuscitation has been in your career. Well, um, again, I think that I credit a lot of, of who I am to my training. And it's funny because this past weekend, um, before this joint meeting here in London, uh, there was the American Heart Association Scientific Sessions and Resuscitation Science Symposium in Philadelphia. There's a chance to go back home. And I was invited to join uh, Dr. Nikarni and Dr. Berg and several of the other co-directors of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia resuscitation team, including Dr. Todd Kilbaugh and Dr. Bobby Sutton, um, who held a, a full-day symposium really trying to create a new pediatric alliance or a global alliance resuscitation. And I really credit them for the vision in creating this, this concept. And they invited folks from around the world to join them at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia to hear about cutting-edge groundbreaking research going on right now in resuscitation science. For me, the take-home points from that day was the paradigm shift in how we think about CPR. It cannot be a one-size-fits-all approach. Now, in order to disseminate and educate both highly skilled in-hospital providers as well as laypersons in the community on the sidewalk, you know, having a one-size-fits-all teaching program, or what we call the Pediatric Advanced Life Support, um, or BLS even, makes sense, completely makes sense. But as we dive deeper into understanding the different patient conditions, physiologies, and combinations, we need to understand that we can no longer have a rescuer-focused CPR approach, but more a physiologic patient-centered focus. We understand there's different etiologies for rest, respiratory versus cardiac. Uh, versus arrhythmia generated versus compression from tampon on, et cetera. So there's different reasons why patients may arrest. And having the same approach in terms of how we deliver CPR may not be the best. And I think there's some amazing work being done um, by Dr. Uh, Bobby Sutton, in particular looking at the hemodynamic effects of CPR and how that can potentially be associated with outcomes. Dr. Bob Berg in particular has done some amazing work um, through a, a multi-center collaborative um, looking at hemodynamics during active CPR in a, in a cohort of patients. Um, and what they found has really changed our, our, our uh, approach 
to um, both the function of chest compressions and ventilation or the combination of those two and potentially what, um, what we're seeing on the, on the back end, which is return of spontaneous circulation rates as well as survival. And so th looking at things like diastolic blood pressure when you have an invasive uh, blood pressure measuring tool like an arterial line, looking at the end tidal CO2, you know, rather than just trying to compress to one-third or one-half the, the chest comp uh, diameter um, and making sure that you're, you're pumping the chest at 100 to 120 beats per minute, you know, we're seeing things in terms of real life that oftentimes we compress much faster and oftentimes we ventilate much faster. And, and in some ways that may not be associated with harm. And so we're just scratching the surface with regards to changing how we approach CPR from a rescuer to a patient or physiologically um, appropriate and focused uh, approach. You so eloquently put that we've learned so much, yet we know so little. So what is the next most pressing discovery in resuscitation research? That's a really good question. I think that when it comes to how we um, practice CPR, for me, there's the very important role of high-quality CPR, but we still haven't defined that. And so how to define high-quality CPR with regards to the, the mechanistic and mechanical, as well as the pharmacologic approaches, which is a particular interest for me, um, as well as in the combination of, of respiratory therapies, um, when to intubate or to continue bag mass ventilation, the role of hyperoxia, the role of hypercarbia. So, you know, I could keep going on about all the different things we don't have answers to, but for me, one of the most groundbreaking um, revelations was, was um, in hearing Dr. Jeffrey Alton recently at the American Heart Association and discuss the results of the Pediatric Cardiac Critical Care Consortium's Cardiac Arrest Prevention Quality Improvement Initiative. So this was a, a nationwide quality improvement um, project that really sought to do one thing, which was to stop doing CPR in our patients. And the only way to do that is to prevent the cardiac arrest. And we all can fully admit that there are patients where you just can't fully prevent a life-threatening sudden arrhythmia or sudden events um, that occur in our ICUs. But there are probably a percentage of patients who have a demise that begins at a point in time um, before the actual arrest in which a potential intervention, either application of vasoactives, uh, reduction of, of agitation or pain, um, and minimizing oxygen consumption, that in patients with marginal cardiac output, you can potentially prevent the arrest. And so this was a cardiac ICU-specific quality improvement initiative. Um, full disclosure, I um, am a volunteer member with PC4, so the organization I sit on their board. Um, and, um, but I, I was not involved in uh, the planning of the, the project, um, and um, as well as Texas Children's, you know, where I work, we were a control site. But I am I'm quite, quite, quite impressed with the work they've done because they were able to show a 46% reduction in cardiac arrest amongst 15 sites um, participating in this quality improvement initiative. And that, that saved lives. I mean, that is a legitimate change in practice that said, you know what, we are gonna make this a priority, we're gonna come together. And the, you know, the, the bundle elements uh, really focused on teamwork, nursing empowerment and engagement um, and communication about clear goals, as well as anticipatory guidance and shared mental modeling. And those are very, very cheap, very, very effective, and really don't require a lot of technology. Um, they also included making sure you have co-dose medications during the highest risk periods available, and so you wouldn't have to wait for the epinephrine or adrenaline to be drawn up, for example. And then, of course, they also highlighted the important role of post-arrest debriefing to make sure 
every center discussed what happened and potentially things that could be done to improve the practice. Um, and so these are, these are again, low cost, uh, but high impact uh, changes that didn't involve new technologies and really avoided CPR. And so, if, you know, we could spend all day talking about the mechanisms and how to perform CPR, but really no CPR is better than quality CPR. And so for me, um, maybe having the conversation amongst the resuscitation world or science world to say, listen, we of course need to make sure we understand how to perform CPR, but is there anything else we can do to prevent it? And that's for me very exciting. Thank you. It's always great to hear about the cardiac arrest prevention project. Um, we are a site and we did also see pretty dramatic results. Um, so I can kind of summarize what you said um, in that our most pressing discovery is how to prevent cardiac arrest um, in order to improve cardiac arrest outcomes mm -hmm. rather than just improving the quality of CPR. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I, think, I think we have to work on both ends um, because, again, there are cases where we're not going to be able to prevent um, and we shouldn't you know, limit the um, discoveries being made right now in terms of trying to understand what high-quality CPR is. But you're right. It's, it's really exciting to think that we can prevent these. Yeah, I will say there is a flip end to that. Uh, when we enacted cardiac arrest prevention in our ICU, we went nine months without a cardiac arrest. So the, the other side of that argument is that you need to have your team be really prepared for when it does happen. Um, so talk to me a little bit about preparedness and training for reacting to these high-stress situations, especially since we are still defining what high-quality CPR is. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like the, as the frequency of, uh, of an event goes down in an institution, that is almost a call for increased frequency of simulation training. And I mentioned simulation training because um, there's so much work right now confirming how important it is to work as a multidisciplinary team in a simulated environment, whether it be high fidelity or low fidelity. And that, that um, potentially even low dose but high frequency training um, has been demonstrated, um, again, with some of the work by Bobby Sutton um, and the team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, that uh, when it comes to performing CPR, for example, that rather than, than having training every two years, like we're currently doing for our PALS training, that potentially on a quarterly or even more frequent basis, but shorter, shorter duration um, um, and audio and visual feedback uh, provided uh, com chest compression training can actually maintain skills better. Um, and so that could likely be applied to a full uh, mock code simulation in which you're just performing this on a more frequent basis. And it doesn't need to be prolonged, but it can be short, um, deliberate practice um, training sessions. And I think there's also some amazing work being done in the emergency room settings, um, sh demonstrating the important role of, 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 of sort of rapid delivery um, and sort of deliberate uh, um, practice um, uh, simulation training to really make sure that folks are aware of their performance on a, on a more frequent basis so it stays sort of fresh. What is one take-home message that you want our listeners to take away from your presentations at the London meeting or just your experience with trying to understand cardiac arrest in general? Well, it's, it's funny, there was a common thread in both my presentation on acute decompensated heart failure and on the role of multi-center collaboratives in improving resuscitation outcomes. And that was that, you know, the first step is to collect the data. And that's where registries um, really are, are allowing us from a multi-center standpoint to, to collect robust 
um, but also um, uh, consistent um, measurements and lexicon across centers um, and really gives you the, the foundation to move forward with the next step. And so there's both data collection, but then translating the data. And you can translate the data in many ways. I think the new era coming to us now with regards to multi-center collaboratives is really the quality science era. Um, and it's something that I, I have uh, recently really been more and more um, in, I guess in some ways, really just impressed by um, with how, how in the end, you know, it's not about the protocols, it's about the outcomes. And if you can improve outcomes and consistently measure that, um, then, then the efforts, um, whether they're controlled or not controlled for, which, you know, as a scientist, most folks will say, well, you, how do we know what made the difference in changing the cardiac arrest rate at a hospital? And I think in the end, if the cardiac arrest rate went down, it probably was multiple things and probably different at each institution, which really goes to the organizational factor impact, which we don't measure. And it's really hard to measure. And so in the end, if you're moving the needle, if you're improving outcomes, whether it be by a very broad quality improvement initiative or a randomized controlled trial, um, at this point in time, I, I see the challenges in trying to do um, traditional science. And I think the quality science era is, is upon us and we need to embrace it and really move forward. So let's shift gears and talk about heart failure in the ICU. Obviously, it's a huge patient population. It's a very complex patient population. Um, what are the things that you wanted to embark upon to understand when you started your project looking at acute decompensated heart failure? Well, the impetus for the project really came from, uh, from uh, the senior author and mentor for me, Dr. Jack Price at Texas Children's Hospital. So Jack is, is a combination heart failure and transplant medicine specialist as well as a cardiac intensivist, although he's recently stepped out of that cardiac ICU, but he wore both hats. And for many years, um, really uh, struggled with trying to understand the changing demographics of the heart failure population um, and really trying to understand why we were seeing more and more of it. Um, at Texas Children's Hospital, we do have a dedicated heart failure intensive care unit for children. Um, and so with my work with PC4, um, Jack really saw an opportunity to sample a larger database uh, with a little bit more robust clinical and outcomes data versus the traditional administrative or billing databases that are, have been used to describe heart failure in children. There are several papers that have been published using the Pediatric Health Information System or the FIST database or the, the Kids Inpatient database. And these are administrative databases using ICD-9 coding um, and really didn't have the opportunity um, to get a little bit more granular about the presence of comorbidities as well as the important role of underlying structural or congenital heart disease. The changing demographic for us was the higher number of younger patients and the higher number of patients with underlying either single ventricle disease or complex uh, congenital heart disease. And they, they didn't fit the traditional mold of a patient with just a simply depressed ejection fraction. They may have had slightly depressed um, single ventricle function, but really had a complex uh, milieu of, of, of inadequate cardiac output, um, additional organ injury, and because of their size being younger babies, really prevent, prevented us from, from using current technologies um, and, and or advanced therapies like durable VADs to manage. And so they ended up just sin, sitting in our ICUs on chronic inotropic therapies, potentially intubated for long periods of time, and really have been, have been tough for us to manage. 
And so by sampling the Pediatric Cardiac Critical Care Consortium, or PC4 database, we're able to get a contemporary cohort of patients and to understand, number one, ages, demographics, and really more granular fundamental cardiac diagnoses for them, and to really be able to split patients who had congenital heart disease from those with biventricular sort of normal, structurally normal hearts, um, and to better understand the impact of congenital heart disease and age on this population. So that was really the impetus, and it really opened our eyes to, to the significant morbidity and mortality burden for the overall acute decompensated heart failure population, but in particular for the patients who have congenital heart disease. And so while I, you know, I, I want to be able to say there's, there's an obvious next step uh, with highlighting this important problem, but we're still really struggling with the, the lack of options. So what was shocking, David, was that you know, the CHD patients didn't, didn't get exposed to ECMO or didn't have as many VADs or even were transplanted less than patients who had um, sort of structurally normal hearts. There's a lot more work that needs to be done to try and figure out why. Um, but I think we all understand that, you know, when the Berlin can really is limited um, in the children who are less than, than school year age, you know, if you get down to the 10 ml Berlin, um, the complication rate um, likely will go up um, with uh, regards to stroke and, and hematologic and coagulation problems. And so there's not a lot of options um, in that patient population, but we're seeing more and more of them in our ICU. Can you talk to me about how your unit is structured, because it is such a different model from a lot of the pediatric cardiac ICUs in the country right now. Um, when you have patients who are going to be admitted to this heart failure ICU, um, who is the care team that takes care of them? Are the nurses specially trained? Is it a different cohort of nurses and cohort of intensivists? So. Um our heart failure ICU is uh, geographically separated from our general or mixed cardiac ICU, as well as from the third uh, cohorted um, cardiac ICU for us, which is our neonatal intensive care unit, our cardiac intensive care unit. And so the heart failure unit is a 12-bed unit, um, and uh, the staffing for from both the physician and nursing standpoint are um, not uh, sub-selected per se in the sense that the nurses that work there only work there, and that's not, not the case. They do work in, in, in all three units. Um, so there's no uh, significant additional uh, coursework that the nursing staff or the physicians have, although we do have uh, a pretty um, uh, well-built uh, just-in-time training program for the ventricular assist devices. We also have tremendous, tremendous input from our VAD coordinator, Dr. Ba um, uh, Nurse Barb Elias, and as well as our uh, surgical director, uh, Dr. Iki Adachi. Um, and so with regards to the, the staffing, the intensivists that staff the heart failure ICU are uh, the same team that covers uh, the rest of the cardiac ICU themselves. But we do have a shared uh, um, model with the cardiology consultants from the heart failure and transplant team. So they're around with us every single day. We do have uh, a dedicated pharmacists from the heart failure and transplant team that around with us. Um, and the rest of the care team in terms of physio physiotherapists, occupational therapists, speech therapists, and respiratory therapists uh, do sort of work throughout. Um, but we do have a growing need and we'll probably be considering sort of a dedicated um, heart failure transplant uh, rehabilitation model. Um, um, and, um, and so um, I'm looking forward to hearing more from our team about that. It's really interesting to hear how things are done differently everywhere and how potentially it might be 
really enlightening in the future to see how different care models might impact our patient outcomes. But can you tell me sort of what your next, next steps or next directions are for this project? Yes, it's a great question. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the interesting findings that we had that we felt was going to be a potentially important target for a quality improvement initiative is the high burden of readmission rates, both to the cardiac intensive care unit and to the hospital after discharge amongst the heart failure population that we sampled. And so I think the next steps for us are going to be to potentially do a deep dive into the risk factors associated with readmission rates, both to CICU, or what we call bounce backs, as well as the hospital readmission rate, which we found was an all-cause readmission rate within 30 days of discharge, which was um, definitely higher for the congenital heart disease patients, um, but just high in general for this cohort. So we're looking forward to, to submitting a proposal for that to extend our work here. Uh, but in, in the bigger scale of things, I'm excited to hear more about um, a, an up-and-coming collaborative that's really uh, paving the way for, for helping us understand both the role of ventricular assist devices and how to improve them from um, the care model for them um, through, um, uh, through quality improvement initiatives, and that's called the ACTION Registry. And ACTION has uh, really been uh, spearheaded by Dr. Angie Lortz at Cincinnati Children's. Um, and has tremendous support across cardiac intensive care units and heart centers, so much so that it's been recognized as one of the five um, um, founding registries for what's called the Cardiac Networks United. Um, and Cardiac Networks United is a, a, an umbrella organization that's been created um, jointly between University of Michigan and Cincinnati Children's through support of the uh, Children's Heart Foundation and the tremendous grant that was just provided. And what this um, uh, sort of network and umbrella network is, is sort of trying to do is to unite the different sources of data um, that is, uh, that's found between, um, between um, the Pediatric Cardiac Critical Care Consortium, the Pediatric Acute Care um, um, Collaborative, uh, which is more the extension into the ward, the Action Registry, uh, the National Pediatric Cardiology Quality Improvement um, Collaborative, and, um, and the Cardiac Neurodevelopmental Outcomes. Uh, consortium or collaborative. And so by joining all these, these registries together, I'm using unique identifiers to match each patient. Um, we're really going to have a wealth of data uh, for the cardiac population. And so I'm looking forward to seeing um, more from action, specifically with regards to heart failure. Um, really, they're working hard to try and get consensus on how to define it and, and then how to track it, um, in addition to the ventricular assist device um, modules that they've, uh, that they've built and are rolling out. Yes, I'm really interested and excited to hear about all the work that's going to come out of Cardiac Networks United, especially because it is the natural extension of this era of innovation in collaborative quality improvement that you talked about. Well, I think the future is very exciting um, in the fields of heart failure and cardiac arrest, um, and I really appreciate you talking with me, Javi, about both of those topics today. Thanks, David. I appreciate the opportunity. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the TCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song I Don't Know by Grapes was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.